0: 70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world.
1: 私の長州歴は今年で3年目です。my radio name is Yuzu, and I'm a regular listener of KBS World Radio Japanese Service. I live in Sapporo, Hokkaido. My listening experience of three years is nothing compared to long-time listeners, but I tune in daily because it is so interesting. KBS World Radio Japanese Service is like a friend who brings updates from Korea. I can get information about my favorite K-dramas and movies, while I can communicate with other listeners through listener comments on all the programs. I did a phone interview earlier this year and the listeners were so kind it's become a great memory for me after the COVID-19 restrictions were lifted I see many Korean tourists here in Hokkaido I plan to visit Seoul to experience Korea firsthand I promise I'll keep tuning in I love you KBS World Radio Japanese service KBS Japanese
0: 70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are.
2: It's Monday the 18th of December and welcome to Korea 24, I'm your host Kwon Jang-wo. North Korea launched an ICBM into the East Sea on Monday morning, the fifth such firing of a long-range ballistic missile this year. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. And then for our in-depth, we'll analyze why Pyongyang may be ramping up provocations and whether actions by Seoul or Washington are having any effect. And coming up for Monday's sports roundup, we take a look back at some of the highlights and the lowlights from 2023 in a special end-of-year wrap-up. We have all that and more on today's Crow24. north korea fired an intercontinental ballistic missile into the east sea on monday morning a day after launching a short-range ballistic missile president yun sang yeol ordered an immediate and overwhelming response to any type of provocation by the regime as the National Security Advisors of South Korea, the U.S. and Japan denounced the launch as a clear violation of U.N. Security Council resolutions. For this and our other major headlines of the day, we have in the studio with us Deputy Editor-in-Chief of KBS World's English News Service, Kim In-Young, hello.
3: Hello, Channel.
2: So North Korea launched two ballistic missiles in less than 24 hours, one of them being an ICBM. Can you begin by telling us the sequence of events?
3: Sure. North Korea launched a short-range ballistic missile from Pyongyang at around 10.40pm on Sunday night, which fell into the East Sea after flying 570 kilometers. That's nearly the same distance as Pyongyang to Busan, where the US nuclear-powered USS Missouri submarine arrived on Sunday. At 8:24 a.m. on Monday morning, it fired an ICBM at a lofted trajectory from Pyongyang. The missile flew 1,000 kilometers before landing in the East Sea, leading to estimations that if flown at a standard angle, it could have flown more than 15,000 kilometers, posing a threat to the US mainland.
2: The launch marked the North's fifth ICBM test this year and the first in 5 months since the uh, Hwasong-18 ICBM in July. So how did South Korea respond?
3: Seoul had the National Security Council Standing Committee meeting presided over by National Security Advisor Cho Tae-yong, which President Yoon also attended. After being briefed on the situation by the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Yoon ordered an immediate and overwhelming response to any type of provocation by North Korea. The president ordered a firm combined defense posture with the United States, as well as an active push for a joint response by Seoul, Washington and Tokyo through the real-time sharing of missile warning data. The three sites have agreed to operate the system by the end of this year and it is reportedly in the final verification stage. The National Security Chiefs of South Korea, the U.S., and Japan also held phone talks on Monday and denounced the ICBM launch as a serious threat to the peace and stability of the Korean peninsula and the international community. The officials said the North clearly violated the U.N. Security Council resolutions and agreed to work together at at the UNSC, seek independent as well as multilateral sanctions against Pyongyang, devise joint responses in the military sector, and cut off illicit funds flowing into the North's nuclear and missile programs.
2: What do we know about the purpose of the back-to-back missile launches? What's the speculation?
3: First of all, the launch on Sunday coincided with the 12th anniversary of the death of late regime leader Kim Jong-il, enhancing domestic solidarity by marking the date a peer step in one of the aims. Secondly, according to North Korea, Sunday's short-range ballistic missile launch was a reaction against a nuclear consultative group session held between South Korea and the United States over the weekend. In a statement on Sunday, the North's defense ministry called the NCG meeting an open declaration on nuclear confrontation. During the NCG session, Seoul and Washington agreed to complete the establishment of guidelines on the planning and operation of a shared nuclear strategy by the middle of next year.
2: Yes, we'll have a further dissection on the missile launches and why the North may be conducting them later in the show. Shifting to other news now, the former Democratic Party chief Song Young-gil appeared for a court review of a warrant seeking his pre-trial detention over alleged bribery ahead of the 2021 party convention. Can you tell us his remarks to reporters and recap what he's accused of?
3: In front of the Seoul Central District Court on Monday, Song said that he had exercised his right to remain silent during the prosecution's questioning, but will humbly and sincerely explain himself in court over suspicions of bribery and violating the election and political fund laws. Song is suspected of involvement in the distribution of 66.5 million won, around 51,000 U.S. dollars to DP lawmakers and regional party heads. He's also separately accused of creating an illegal political fund totaling 763 million won, Part of which were bribes for a business favour.
2: Yes, the court decision is expected to come later today or early Tuesday morning. Meanwhile, a series of confirmation hearings are lined up at the National Assembly this week, starting with a hearing for the Agriculture Minister nominee on Monday. Can you tell us about some of the issues that were addressed today?
3: Agriculture Minister nominee Song Miryong said she supports ending dog meat consumption. Asked whether she supports the enactment of a special law to end the consumption of dog meat, she said certainly, adding that the government should provide support within reasonable boundaries for those who will have to discontinue business due to the special law. But she said it would be excessive to make comp- compensation compulsory. This comes after the opposition camp unilaterally passed a special law through the National Assembly's Agriculture Committee recently. She also expressed opposition to amending the Grain Management Act, which requires the government to purchase excess rice at a certain threshold to manage its supply and demand.
2: Yes, there'll be confirmation hearings for the Finance and Oceans Minister nominees. That's scheduled for Tuesday, Transport on Wednesday, and then SMEs and Veterans Affairs on Thursday. We'll have more updates in the coming days. And finally, the Korean Medical Association held a massive rally in central Seoul on Sunday to protest the government's push to increase the enrollment quota for medical students in the nation. Can you tell us more?
3: After the rally in the Gangnamun area, the KMA marched toward the presidential office in Yongsan. Also on Sunday, the association closed a week-long vote on suspending treatment but doesn't plan to reveal the outcome. Tensions between doctors and the government have been rising since the government's announcement of survey results favoring a hike in the medical school in quota. In response, the KMA set up a special committee on blocking the collapse of the nation's medical services and has staged an overnight protest in front of the presidential office since early this month.
2: That's all for our news briefing today. Thank you for bringing us those updates. Thank you. North Korea's launch of an intercontinental ballistic missile on Monday morning marked the fifth such provocation this year. It also represents the highest number of ICBM launches that the rogue state has conducted in a single year. This comes despite the U.S. bringing more strategic assets to the Korean peninsula this year on the back of South Korea's demands for stronger deterrence measures against the North. To discuss the latest move by the North and the changing geopolitical environment surrounding the peninsula, we have joining us on the line now Brian Myers, Professor of International Studies at Dongsa University and a noted North Korea expert. Professor Myers, hello and thank you for your time.
4: Thank you for having me, as always.
2: First off, what do you make of the timing of this latest ICBM launch? Uh, Why do you think North Korea conducted it now?
4: Well, you know, let me say what I don't think it was. I don't think it was a response to the NCG meeting, you know, in contrast to some speculation that's out there. I think the short-range missile, perhaps, but not the ICBM, because you don't go firing something uh, that costly and important uh, in order to protest a a meeting. Uh, I don't think the question should be, why was an ICBM launched on December 18th? But why have so many uh, long-range long missiles been uh, fired this year, launched this year, and I think this frequency is not just an effort to keep up the pressure on the United States, but also an effort to make very clear uh, to the entire world that North Korea has a reliable and, and consistent launch capability, you know, and in order to prove that, you've got to, to keep launching, you know.
2: Right. Before we talk more about why North Korea may have uh, launched this and why North Korea continues to fire ICBMs this year, uh, if we just talk a bit more about the details of the launch of what we know so far, it was fired at a lofted angle and travelled around 1,000 kilometres before coming down in the East Sea. That's according to South Korea's Joint Chiefs of Staff. What do the details of the projectile suggest? And do you think it could be a solid fuel long-range uh, missile, which South Korean officials say that North Korea has been uh, developing and it's in its final stages.
4: Well, yeah, the, the latest news that I saw was that the South Koreans have ascertained, or, or say that they've ascertained, that it was indeed uh, uh, solid fuel involved. Uh, as for the, the the details of the of, of the missile itself, even though uh, it was higher, it was fired so high into the sky it hit an altitude of about six thousand kilometers at one point it still managed to traverse a distance of 1,000 kilometers. So according to the experts, this means that uh, if the ICBM had been fired at a flatter or lower angle trajectory, uh, it would have had a range of 15,000 kilometers, meaning it would have had the range to reach uh, anywhere in the continental United States. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that these ICBMs can accurately hit a designated target. And, and that's the test that a missile uh, evidently has to pass before it can be indisputably called a successful ICBM test. But that fact, I think, isn't uh, a, a great consolation from an American perspective. So since July, the North has twice uh, demonstrated um, that its missiles have the range to hit pretty much anywhere on U.S. territory. And that doesn't just suggest a pretty solid grasp of the relevant technology, it also suggests uh, pretty healthy finances. Uh, So clearly uh, the sanctions are just not biting to the extent that America had hoped they would be.
2: Right. Uh, you said that this latest missile launch is perhaps not in response to the uh, second session of the nuclear consultative group or the NCG between Seoul and Washington, uh, but it does come just days after it. And during the meeting, they agreed to complete the establishment of guidelines in the planning and operation of a shared nuclear strategy against the North. Uh, the North defence ministry has lambasted the meeting as an open declaration on nuclear uh, confrontation. Do you think the NCG meetings between Seoul and Washington and the closer ties the two have forged into Terrence have had any effect in containing North Korea, Professor? Seoul and Washington are constantly bringing U.S. strategic assets to the peninsula now, but they don't seem to be stopping North Korea from provoking Washington. And in fact, some experts say that the nuclear assets that the U.S. are bringing in are only providing further justifications for North Korea's ballistic missile launches. What's your take?
4: It's a, it's a tough question. I think when you get right down to it, I mean, let's be serious. I mean, the whole point of the NCG meetings and of these very uh, ostentatious visits to South Korea by nuclear submarines, nuclear-powered aircraft carriers, most of them to where I am in Pusan, uh, is not so much to uh, intimidate or contain North Korea. It's not so much to serve a, a real military purpose as to reassure conservative South Koreans that America is committed to defending this country against uh, nuclear attack. Uh, From the North's perspective, I think, uh, you know, a nuclear submarine that is docked quite openly in Busan is probably better than a nuclear submarine underwater and out of sight. Now, as you know, there was quite a bit of talk uh, before the Washington Declaration uh, about South Korea perhaps pursuing its own nuclear capability, and that was a prospect uh, that the Americans didn't even want to contemplate. So that's what these measures were about, Uh, though I'm not sure they have succeeded even in reassuring South Koreans a lot. And they have indeed given the North Koreans more of a justification or more of a pretext, if you like, uh, for going full steam ahead with their nuclear program. Don't get me wrong, I think they would have gone full steam ahead anyway, but there's perhaps a little bit more sympathy for North Korea's position now than there was last year.
2: Do you also think that perhaps the tighter partnership between North Korea and Russia is making uh, North Korea more confident as well. This missile launch comes on the back of the successful launch of a military spy satellite last month, which Russia is expected to have helped, uh, providing at least technological know-how. That's after the leaders of the two countries uh, met earlier this year. And how concerned do you think the U.S. view the tightening North Korea-Russia ties?
4: Well, I'm not sure just how much technological input there was. I don't think there was enough time, really, for the Russians to have had much to do with that satellite. But I think that that the partnership with Moscow is making North Korea more confident. Uh, But it's not just that. It's also, I think, the North's awareness that the United States now has two hot conflicts to worry about in other parts of the world, namely the Ukraine and Gaza, and is therefore unlikely to want to risk uh, another hot conflict over here. You know, the North Koreans, I think, remember all too well, uh, because this is like the shining high point of their post-war history. They remember how the Vietnam War forced the Americans into a very passive role on the Korean peninsula uh, in the late 1960s and early 70s. You know, Washington didn't retaliate against the capture of the USS Pueblo in 68. It didn't retaliate against the large scale, uh, deadly North Korean incursions into South Korea. So that history is probably informing their confidence now to a certain extent as well. Mm. Uh, meanwhile, my sense is that, uh, yeah, Kim's cooperation with Putin really is causing a lot of people in Washington to uh, to become more concerned about North Korea and perhaps to take an increasingly hardline view of the North. I've noticed that the liberal Western press has been striking harsher notes in coverage of the country since all that news broke about Uh, North Korea providing ammunition to Putin. Um, You know, you see more people referring to North Korea as evil and so on. This very extreme uh, moralizing language. And I do tend to think that this is the result of Putin and Kim uh, drawing closer together.
2: The satellite launch uh, we mentioned that was launched last month, that also Uh, led to the 2018 inter-Korean military accord being all but scrapped by the two Koreas. The military pact had provided a buffer zone of sorts between the south and the north for any potential clashes especially near the border this latest missile launch obviously has uh, many concerned are you concerned about the situation between the two koreas at all considering the north's continued provocations do you think there is a significant or real risk that north korea could carry out other localized provocations against south korea
4: it's difficult to say because, you know, parliamentary elections are coming up here in April next year. Now, it's true that uh, North Korea's two big attacks in 2010, you know, the Cheonan sinking and the bombardment of Yeonpyeong Island, they were followed by big defeats for the conservative party in the polls. But, uh, you know, public opinion could just as easily tilt in the other direction in favor of the ruling party. Uh, you know, South Korean voters are always very unpredictable. So all things considered, I would expect North Korea to focus on the nuclear program for the time being, to keep up this momentum, and refrain from any risky uh, provocations of South Korea. Though I wouldn't be surprised if we continue to see relatively low-profile uh, things like artillery fired into the L.O.C. Sea. Now, as for that military accord uh, being virtually scrapped, I don't really see what choice President Yun had, because if South Korea were to abide by that accord despite the North Koreans uh, repeatedly violating it, I think that could well have been more dangerous in the long run. Where I would question the judgment of this administration and the Biden administration, I think, is in all this gratuitous talk of wiping out North Korea if it uses nuclear force. You know, the North Koreans have to know if they do this, there will be no more North Korea. Now, I realize that's not really a threat, you know, to say, if you do this, I will do that. But nevertheless, I think we should keep in mind that North Korea is... A military first state whose entire legitimacy is bound up with its claim to strength and invincibility. So, if our side talks about wiping it out, uh, if only in conditional formulations like that, it does raise the likelihood, in my opinion, of the regime doing something to show its own people that it's not afraid of us.
2: With that in mind, then, and while we have you, uh, Professor, how do you predict the situation on the Korean Peninsula to pan out in the year ahead in 2024? Especially with the U.S. presidential election approaching it in November as well, can we get your thoughts on uh, how you preview the year ahead for the Korean Peninsula?
4: Ooh, well, you know, my, my crystal ball is, isn't very helpful there because there are so many variables in so many parts of the world that could, um, you know, alter the outcome. Does Russia win in Ukraine? Does the Gaza conflict drag on and perhaps uh, expand to involve Iran? Does the South Korean opposition win big uh, in April next year? And does Donald Trump win the uh, U.S. presidential elections? I think of all the variables, that last one uh, is likely to loom particularly large in Kim Jong-un's mind. You know, he may even be counting on the prospect of a return to negotiations uh, and thinking that he needs to develop his nuclear capability as fast as possible so that he can negotiate from a stronger position. But I think uh, no matter what happens with those variables, uh, no matter what happens in the U.S. or in in Ukraine or the Middle East, uh, we're going to see the North's uh, nuclear program continue making steady and pretty impressive progress, uh, whether we like it or not.
2: As ever, Professor Myers, we appreciate your time and your insights. Uh, We'll leave it there. We'll be speaking to Professor Brian Myers from Tongsa University. Thank you once again.
4: Thank you.
0: Welcome to the Korea24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index gained 3.30 points or 0.13% on Monday to close the day at 2,566.86. The tech-heavy COSDEC also jumped, climbing 12.65 points or 1.51% to close at 850.96. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 0.71 against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,297.21. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr.
2: We move on now to Korea Trending, our daily segment where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online. And for that, we have with us in the studio contributor Diane Yu. hello. It's great to see you. Hello, Django. Let's get straight into the first story. What do you have for us?
5: The walls of Seoul's Gyeongbokgung Palace, which was the main palace of the Joseon dynasty, were vandalized with graffiti over the weekend. According to Chonglo police station, officials received a report about graffiti found on the palace's walls at 2.20 a.m. on Saturday and began to track down the suspects. However, on Sunday, more graffiti was found not far from the graffiti spotted the day before.
2: Yes, this news that such a historic landmark had been defaced not only once but twice Mm. has really shocked the nation. So can you tell us a bit more about the graffiti itself? What was written on the wall?
5: For the first vandalism, a phrase that reads free movie in Korean was repeatedly sprayed in red and blue paint along the western walls of the Royal Palace. And the names of suspected illegal streaming sites that share movies and dramas were written on the wall as well. What the police additionally found on Sunday was a song title and singer's name written in red spray paint.
2: Right. And we should say it was very big. It wasn't just any small piece. It was was huge. More than 40 meters long, I believe, the first... Uh, vandalism. Mm-hmm. And it was very crudely drawn and written. It wasn't any sort of artistic expression as such. It was just no. uh, simple vandalism, it looked like. Right. What have the police found in their investigation so far?
5: Uh, after going through CCTV footage, it was discovered that the suspects for the first vandalism on Saturday walked around the Gyeongbokgung Palace area for about an hour, leaving graffiti up to 44 metres long and fled the scene without being caught. Police believe that there are two suspects, one man and one woman. As for the second vandalism that took place the day after, the suspect, a man in his 20s, turned himself in on Monday and told the police that he was actually a copycat. The police are questioning the man and checking whether he had an accomplice. The authorities are also analyzing the surveillance videos in detail to find out the suspects for the first vandalism. However, the officials said that it's difficult because they carefully dodged the cameras installed nearby. The Cultural Heritage Administration has installed a temporary barrier at the site and is mobilizing about 20 experts from the Cultural Heritage Conservation Science Centre to carry out chemical cleaning and restoration work. It's expected that it'll take at least a week to raise the spray marks. Right, that was the
2: concern that this will inspire more copycat
5: crimes.
2: Hopefully the police can catch all the perpetrators quickly to Mm. send a message that such acts will be punished. Uh, In the meantime, we certainly hope that the conservationists can restore the walls uh, to their former glory as well. Let's continue on to our second story. What do you have for us?
5: A video showing a man hanging on a running train causing a delay in operation has put a lot of people in shock in the nation. The incident occurred at Kwangmyong Station in Gyeonggi Province at around 3.50 p.m. on Friday. It was found that a foreign man who was late for departure clung to a moving KTX train because the door would not open for him.
2: Yes, I've seen the video as well. It's quite jaw-dropping. The man is not even hanging onto a door, but he managed to find footing and something to hold on to yeah. in the gap between the carriages. Right? How did the train operator react?
5: The officials of Corail, an operator for the high-speed rail system, tried to stop the man, but he ignored their instructions to get down. He only came down to the platform after the operator stopped the train, and then he complained how the train started moving even after seeing him at the door.
2: That is a ludicrous reason and a selfish one at that, putting himself in danger and Mm. forcing the train operator to stop disrupting everyone's day. Right. So what's happened to the man?
5: The man eventually got on the train and was fined after arriving at his destination. Here, what we have to remember is that this kind of behavior is absolutely illegal. Article 48 of the Railroad Safety Act prohibits any act that interferes with train operation by boarding or disembarking a train while it's in operation, or interfering with the opening and closing of boarding doors without justifiable reasons. Not to mention safety, since the maximum speed of the KTX train is about 300 kilometers per hour it's also dangerous and impossible for a person to hold on to
2: yes i don't think he was intending to hold on for the entire ride it was yeah. more of a, a protest mm. but it's definitely unacceptable behavior right. and a reminder that you should always arrive early before yeah. uh, boarding a train as <laughs> yeah. well let's uh, move on to the third story of the day what else do you have for us today
5: The five major traditional holidays that Koreans have celebrated for thousands of years have been designated as National Intangible Cultural Heritages. On Monday, the Cultural Heritage Administration decided to designate Lunar New Year and Daeboreum, the 105th day after the winter solstice, Tano, Chuseok and Dongji as new traditional intangible cultural heritages. This title is given to cultural heritages with great historical or artistic values. And this is the first time that a holiday has become one
2: okay so how did these five holidays make the list
5: the cultural heritage administration made the decision after extensive field work literature research and consultation with relevant experts and as a result the five major holidays were evaluated as worthy of the designation as they have been passed down from ancient times to the present and they can be compared with other holiday cultures around the world
2: Right, So for our listeners who might be hearing about these traditional holidays for the first time, can you tell us more about them?
5: To start with Lunar New Year or Seul날 in Korean, it's a traditional festival and national holiday commemorating the first day of the lunar calendar, and Teborum celebrates the first full moon of the new year. The 105th day after the winter solstice, known as Hansik in Korean, represents the spring season that usually falls on April 5th. It's mostly about remembering ancestors by holding ancestral rites and visiting their graves. Tano falls on the fifth day of the fifth month of the lunar calendar and is said to to be a day with positive yang energy. It orgi- originated from an ancient time when people worshipped the sun and the moon.
2: Right, so Seulnal and Daoborom have been put together for this, then han and and tan mm-hmm. leaves two more Uh, next is chuseok the mid-autumn harvest festival also considered korean thanksgiving
5: that's right millions of koreans travel across the country to their hometowns each year for family reunions and to give thanks for a bountiful harvest and lastly dongji is a celebration of the winter solstice this day has the longest night with the shortest amount of daylight of the year and people usually celebrate the day by eating patjuk or sweet red bean porridge
2: Right. So by designating these days as national intangible cultural heritages, their significance is recognised and recorded for future generations. Right. OK, that's we're going to leave it for today's career Trending. Thank you for those stories, Diane, and we'll see you again next time. See you next time. Next up, it's Monday Sports Roundup, our weekly segment where we dive into the Korean sporting world. And this week, it is in fact our last roundup of the year. That's because next week is Christmas and then it's the new year already. So today, we have a special extended end of year roundup looking back at the sporting highlights of 2023. And to do that, we have two guests with us today, both in the studio. First, we have our main regular contributor, reporter Yu from the Yellow News Agency. Jiho, hello. It's great to see you. It's great to see you too. Yes, in person as well. It's great to see you again. And we also have our fill-in guest whenever Jiho is not available or reporting overseas. That is, of course, sports writer and football expert Steve Price. Steve, hello to you too. Yeah, hello and happy Christmas for next week. Yes, happy Christmas for next week to you both. It's great to have you uh, both with us today. There's lots to cover. So let's get cracking. Let's start with the most memorable sporting moment in Korea for 2023 when you look back at 2023 what will you remember Ji-ho, let's start
6: with you yeah from the domestic sports i think uh the lg twins finally winning the korean series title as the kbo champions uh, was a pretty big story of course the lg twins being one of the i guess the most popular team in the kbo uh but ha- not having won anything since 1994 uh you know finally they had a shot play- playing in the korean series for the first time since 2002 and Coming through, winning it in Game Five over the KT Wiz. Now they lost the first game of the current series, mm. and there was a lot of "Oh, here we go again" kind of vibe <laughs> among the fan base. There, you know, th- this is a very passionate but also very frustrated, very aggrieved fan base to begin with. I can imagine twenty-nine years. Twenty-nine that's a long years, and, yeah, I mean, this is a forty-one-year-old league. So if you if you go twenty-nine <laughs> years not winning it, that's pretty long time. Mm. And for them to drop the first game, and if you look at the odds, if you look at the history of the Korean Series, the teams that win the first game have gone on to win the title about seventy-five percent of the time. Wow! So okay. for them to lose the first game at home, again, there was a lot of "uh-oh," you know, here we go again. Mm. And they were trailing four nothing after first inning in the game two, but mm. they rallied to win that game five to four, and then they did not lose again the rest of the series. They won game three, uh, eight to seven, rallied with the three runs in the top of the ninth inning on the road. And uh, took the game for fourth game a laugh for fifteen to four, and closed it out in game six at home. Actually, game five at home six to two. Um, to I guess um, end years of years of frustration. So good for them, the Twins. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, a lot of tears in the stands. and I, I was there. Uh, there's a lot of fans just crying tears of joy. A lot of elation there so um, congrats to I guess the LG Twins for winning it for the first time in 29 years. Yeah it's an incredible story.
2: Uh, LG finally winning the championship again a real highlight of the year definitely. Steve let me turn to you now what was perhaps uh, your most memorable moment or uh, thing that happened for you in sports in 2023 in Korea?
7: Yeah, I mean these kind of things we normally look at the successes like winning the championship and stuff Uh, for me though uh, in terms of the football in terms of the K-League it's kind of the failures that were so memorable this season Mm. Um, maybe if you're a a Suwon Blue Wings fan it's kind of a season you want to forget (laughs) Um, but yeah I mean the title race in the K-League was quite unexciting this time Uh, Ulsan just strolled to the title but down at the bottom uh, you know We've seen in the last few seasons, there's been a few big clubs always there, almost getting relegated, fighting. We've had FC Seoul, we've had some Blue Wings there in the last few seasons. Uh, But if you're down there, eventually it's going to go wrong and you're going to get relegated. And that's what happened to uh, the Blue Wings this season. They finished bottom of the league. They only won eight games all season. And this is a team which were once the Asian champions. They, They won the K League as recently as 2008. They came second in the league in 2014, 2015. And so, yeah, you know, how can they get relegated, such a big team, compared to some of the other teams? Mm. And, yeah, it just all went wrong this season. They actually changed their managers twice to try and get things going. They brought in Kim Byung-soo kind of early on in the season in May. He couldn't turn it around, got rid of him. They brought in the club legend, Yom Ki hoon as well. Anyone who's watching the K-League, he always seems to get the best out of um, Su won as who's a player. They'd look like they'd lose so many games and he would score... A last-minute goal to win it for them, or something like that. Mm. But when it came to coaching, he couldn't quite manage it. It looked like he did with um, the last but one game of the season against FC Seoul. Seoul really wanted to relegate uh, Blue Wings. It was a huge crowd. I think there's like fifty thousand there. Uh, great atmosphere, and Blue Wings won that one nil. They thought they're going to do it. They're going to stay up. But then the last game of the season, they only managed to draw nil nil against Gangwon. So they, they got relegated, and it's kind of going to be. A bit of a huge embarrassment for Samsung you know they're you know, the biggest company in Korea they've had so much sporting success in the past but all of their teams these days in all sports seem to be doing very badly <laughs> uh, so maybe this relegation is going to be a bit of a wake-up call for Samsung uh, in terms of how they're going to act towards their sports teams and uh, certainly it's going to be interesting next year with uh, the Blue Wings in the second tier of Korean football.
2: Right of course it can't all be highlights there are Uh, Some lowlights as well. And Suwon's relegation has been shocking. That has been, unfortunately, one of the major headlines of the year. You say it's a season to forget. Well, they won't be able to forget it next year either. Because, as you said, they'll be competing in the K League too. But we'll see how they fare uh, next year, whether they can jump back up right away. uh, Because they have, you know, for the financial backing, as you said, they are... uh, Owned by one of the biggest companies in Korea, so we'll see what happens. Uh, Jiho, you mentioned baseball, the LG Twins, for the highlight of the year. Uh, we actually want to get an update on some other major news as well that came out over the last week. We mentioned it on our show uh, last Wednesday, but uh, the QM Heroes center fielder Yi Jong-hoo has signed a six-year contract worth 113 million US dollars with the San Francisco Giants in the MLB. So, Gio, this is one of the major stories of the year as well, uh, because that is a huge contract for something coming straight from the KBO, right? Can you walk us through the details of it?
6: Sure. Well, it is the largest contract for a uh, Korean player going from KBO to MLB through posting. And, uh, you know, Lee Jong ho was posted earlier in December. Uh, San Francisco Giants jumped right on into it, uh, didn't waste a lot of time. In fact, signing him barely about a week into his posting, negotiation window so giving him 130 million dollars over six years uh, he can actually opt out after year number four meaning he could become a free agent after 2027 season when he's still 29 years old mm. so it's a great deal for him uh, he's going to make seven million dollars in 2024 uh, 16 million in 2025 22 million dollars each in 26 and 27 27 and 20.5 20 point, point million in the final two years of the six-year deal, mm. if he does choose to stay with the Giants, and he's also receiving a five million dollars signing bonus, uh, he's going to make some contributions to charities in the San Francisco community. Um, hey, look, it's a lot of money. Uh, I think uh, <laughs> a lot of pundits even predicted he would. Someone like him would maybe command. You know, fifty, sixty million over four or five years, and he's getting about double that amount in total value. Uh, but uh, you know, that's how that's the way the market played out. Uh, he was, I guess, fortunate to be in the in the open market when there were teams looking for center fielders like him. So uh, good for him, and uh, I think he's going to be a great fit with this team. Right. Well, that's the question. It's a big contract, mm-hmm. and with that
2: comes the burden of expectation. It's perhaps. A difficult question to ask right now, but how do you think he will fare in the majors?
6: Well, you know, as, as far as the fit is concerned, uh, the Giants needed a steady center fielder who could play, you know, half, even half-decent defense and put the ball in play at the plate. You know, this is a team that went through 11 center fielders in 2023. Wow. And none of them particularly <laughs> any good, uh, re- which is why they were, you know, they went through 11 players in the, in the first place. So they, you know, wanted somebody who could be, be sort of the stabilizing force in center and be, uh, I guess, uh, you know, good contact hitter near the top of the lineup. And if he really fits the bill. In fact, uh, Farhan Zaidi, the president of baseball operations with the Giants, said during uh, Lee jung press conference that they found him to be a perfect fit when they looked at the options in the open market this offseason. So... Mm. And the teams typically don't invest this kind of money into a player to put him on the bench, right? So he's going to get every opportunity to play every day on a regular basis uh, in center field and potentially near the top of the lineup. So, again, there's a lot of pressure, right? There's a big number. Uh, There's a lot of money he's making. Hmm. He's going to have to live up to that contract. And also, uh, for someone like him going from one of the best players in the KBO to try to prove himself in the majors, uh, you know, he's got other KBO players kind of waiting in the wings, ho- hoping that he's going to be blazing the trail a little bit for them, sure. so that the scouts, looking at some of the KBO players, see someone like Lee Jung-Hoo play well, and they're going to say, you know what, uh, you know, there's going to be a good players, more good... there might be more good players coming out of the KBO, so they might have, uh, they might end up having a little more positive outlook on KBO players, depending on how someone like Lee Jong hoo does. Yes, it'll be really exciting for Korean baseball fans to
2: see how he fares uh, next year. Uh, Before we move on, Jiho, let me stay with you for one more topic. One other major achievement in baseball we should also mention is someone who is already in the majors, the San Diego Padres infielder Kim Ha-sung, became the first South Korean and only the second Asian player to win a coveted gold
6: glove in the MLB. That was quite a special recognition as well this year, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, he was a, a solid defender in the KBO when he was playing with the heroes, actually teammates with Lee Uh, Jung-Hoo. Certainly not a great defender in in Korea, but he really worked at it. He really worked at his defense when he went to the majors uh, with the Padres. You know, he was a slugger back in the KBO. Uh, I guess he realized he wasn't going to be the type of hitter in the MLB against that kind of pitching. So he probably decided, you know what, I'm going to make my defense a calling card. So he really worked at it. Um, This is something that kept him in the lineup in year two when he wasn't really hitting for a lot of power. Um, so he was he was a finalist for a uh, Gold Glove in 2022, finally won it in in 2023 at the utility position. He's a primarily a second baseman this year, but um, he also played a second uh, shortstop in third base. So he's got a lot of um, uh, versatility mm. as far as his ability to play different positions. So he's, he's a really valuable player in that sense, and also he hit for a lot more power this year compared to the last couple of years. So he's. A, a really good example of a player really working at his game, Right. Uh, even when he kind of reached it, you know, reach, when, you, when you go to the majors, you might kind of say, you know what, I've already made it. I could just, you know, go through the motions. I could still be good enough to play at this level. But here's a guy who really worked at his game, right. uh, improved the area uh, of the game that wasn't particularly good to, uh, in the beginning of his career. Right, so it's
2: hard work that paid off for him. His defensive versatility, as you said, has been a real asset. And he's become a, a bit of a fan favourite for the Padres uh, as well. So it's great to see him receive that award. OK, Steve, let me turn to you now to talk more about the year in football. You talked about mm-hmm. the uh, domestic league, but let's talk about the national team and some of the major Korean stars playing abroad as well. It, it was a transition year for the team with their new head coach, Jürgen Klinsmann, taking over. But uh, how would you describe the year in football for Korea and which Korean player stuck out to you the most this year?
7: Yeah, exactly. It's a change. It's a, a new cycle, a new World Cup cycle. So um, there's been quite a lot of changes. The big one, of course, changing the manager, uh, the head coach, bringing in Jurgen Klinsmann. Very controversial at the time. Um, he's He had some success as a coach at the start of his coaching career, uh, especially with Germany and a bit at the start with the USA. But then after that, Lots of things went wrong and he's been out of the game for ages before joining Korea. So mm. it was a bit of a shock appointment. It started terribly for him. Um, they didn't win any of the first five games and you could really feel the pressure was on him then. Uh, especially as uh, he was getting a lot of criticism for spending too much time kind of out of the country. Mm. Now. not sh- I mean, Some of that I think is justified, but some of it also is a bit unjustified because so many of the Korean players... Uh, especially the ones in the national team do play abroad mm. and so do all of Korea's opponents and all right. the Korean players who play in Korea play for like two teams. So seems <laughs> you know, John Book and So it's a bit a bit of a, some, some, something justified, but something maybe a bit too much. Right. Uh, but then from September, uh, stuff has started going a bit better. The national team's actually turned things around. They've won the last five games in a row, scored 19 goals in that time and they conceded none. So mm. that's Pretty good performance. Some were against quite easy teams, but some are actually against pretty good teams like Saudi Arabia, uh, one of the better teams in Asia at the moment, against Tunisia, who are always at the World Cup. And then uh, we actually had the World Cup qualifiers starting already. Uh, probably the trickiest game of this round for Korea was away against China, and they won that 3-0 and made China look like amateurs, basically. Right. So um, they're in a very good position. Uh, Going into the World Cup and also going into the Asian Cup in January, which is uh, something for all of us to look forward to in a new year
2: definitely so Klinsman at first it was a rough start there were people calling for his job right away pretty much but he mm. has managed to turn things around he silenced his critics for now but I guess we'll see how they fare uh, in the Asian Cup yeah that uh, about the
7: real test won't it
2: definitely because especially because he's said that that's his target he wants to win mm. the Asian Cup so anything uh, short of that or reaching the final I think people will be disappointed and they will mm. uh, question his uh, coaching ability once again uh, what about some of the players who? stood out for you this year?
7: Yeah, so I mean, when we think about the Korean national team over the last five years or so, a lot of times people have just called it plus 10 almost. (laughs) Uh, We can't call it that anymore, that's for sure, because uh, at least two players are now at world-class kind of level. Mm. Uh, Kim Min-jae has had such a great season. Uh, He led Napoli to the first Serie A title since the days of Diego Maradona. Uh, So it's fantastic for him to do that. And that success was because of mainly Kim Min-jae's excellent defending. Mm. He was named the best defender in Syria, like one of the best leagues in the world. He was on the Ballon d'Or list for one of the world's best footballers, who's actually the highest-ranked defender, uh, from what I can see, on that list, which effectively made him the best defender in the whole world last year, or last season. Indeed. So uh, that's some kind of year. Um, In the summer, he that strong Napoli performance got him mean, a dream move to Bayern Munich. Yeah. Again, one of the biggest clubs in the world. And they signed him for, uh, the figures quoted are more than 50 million euros. Um, and so that makes him the most expensive Asian signing ever. Mm. And since then, he's been playing every game for, for Munich. He actually scored his first goal for the club uh, this weekend in a 3-0 win against Stuttgart. So he's had a fantastic year and has definitely shown that he's up there as one of
2: the world's elite footballers. Definitely. When he's playing for the national team as well, you can see how he's just a class above uh, everyone at the moment, especially in Asia.
7: Yeah. And um, another one has been gang In, who... Everybody's seen his potential for years, but he's never quite been able to do it for all sorts of reasons to do with himself and what's going on at the clubs he's been playing at. But this season, he's really, or this year, he's really shown uh, what he is capable of. He had um, a great season with Mallorca last year in La Liga. Uh, He actually, in that season, he was the sixth best dribbler in the whole of La Liga last season in terms of the number of successful dribbles. Uh, And so he had a great season there. Then got that big move in the summer to Paris Saint-Germain and as soon as they signed him they wanted to capitalize on that they arranged a friendly in Busan <laughs> uh, as they're already uh, in Japan a week before uh, so straight away he got that warm welcome to the club it shows what a big signing for them he is hmm. um, he had a few injuries at the start of uh, his career there but he's actually now really nailed down a starting spot in uh, you know, a Champions League club uh, one of the biggest clubs in the world so he's on for great things and Another name quickly to mention is Yi Chan, who, for me, he's, he's never really looked like a Premier League player until this season. But suddenly this season, he's having the best of his career. He's scored eight goals already. He's only two goals behind Heung Min. So he's having a great career, a great season at a team that doesn't score many goals. So that's really impressive for him.
2: Yeah, it's been a while since we've seen so many Korean players flourishing in so many leagues across Europe. It's uh, It's been great to see. Hopefully they will continue to shine next year as well. And finally, there was no Olympics or World Cup this year, but we did see the Asian Games take place in Hangzhou, China, a year later than initially scheduled due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Jiho, you were over there covering Team Korea. Mm -hmm. Can you remind us of how they did and what stuck out to you about how they did this year? Which events stood out?
6: Yeah, so Korea finished in third uh, in the meta race behind China and Japan for the second straight Asian Games. Uh, They were able to narrow the gap a little bit with Japan, but uh, still finished behind uh, japan uh for the second consecutive competition uh, you know we've touched upon baseball and football so far obviously those two national teams winning gold medals uh especially football winning the third straight uh getting the military exemptions for guys like yi gang and uh Wuyang <laughs> uh, and what, what have you uh, out in europe but uh, for me on the same day that baseball and football finals are played uh in badminton anse young uh, winning the women's singles gold medal uh, basically playing about 80% of the final on one leg. Mm-hmm. Uh, she hurt uh, one of the knees during the final, uh, somehow battled through the pains to win it. Uh, her second gold medal of the competition after winning the team gold medal there. So, um, And uh, she was recently named the uh, the Female Player of the Year by the Badminton Award Federation. So a great year for An Se-young uh, after winning the, those gold medals in the Asian Games. And also for me, uh, in table tennis, uh, Korea's women's doubles team, Chun Ji-hee and Shin Yu bin winning the gold medal uh, for, for the for the country's first Asian Games ping pong gold medal in 21 years wow. since Busan 2002. And dominated by China, of course. Right. I mean, China wins every pretty much every table tennis gold medal. But uh, Korea c- kind of got fortunate that the Chinese pairs got eliminated by other teams earlier in the tournament. So they ended up playing a North Korean team that they dominated in the finals. So uh, a great story there for especially Shin Yu bin one of the... I guess uh, she's been a prodigy for so many years. She's still she's been around for so for so long, but she's still just nineteen years old. Mm. And for her to win the Asian Games gold medal, a uh, great story there in, in table tennis. Indeed, some great stories there, Steve. Uh, you were here covering the games for us while
2: Jiho was away. What stood out for you from the games?
7: Yeah, I thought Korea was so strong in the, in the swimming uh, over the Asian Games. They Especially the men's swimming, they pretty much dominated. They won six golds, four silvers, and five bronzes, Set an Asian record and four Asian Games records. So it's really impressive there. Uh, a lot of the focus before the swing started was on uh, Son Yu, of course, um, one of Korea's greats. But actually, it was Kim Woo Min who won the most golds. He got two individuals and he was part of the team hmm. that got the four by two hundred meter freestyle gold as well. And yeah, Korea was just so impressive that winning so many medals. Um, the women's team didn't quite win as many, but they still picked up quite a few, um, yeah, a silver and a few bronzes. Right. Uh, but, yeah, while the swimming went so well, it kind of felt like the athletics and the track events didn't really work out for Korea. There's so many of uh, the medals that are available for the Asian Games and for the Olympics are in those kind of sports, mm. uh, as, along with cycling and rowing. And out of cycling, rowing, athletics, field and track, I think Korea picked up no gold medals at all, only three medals in total. So... Uh, There's somewhere where there's an obvious place to improve if Korea want to win more medals, uh, if that is what the the aim, uh, the end goal is.
2: Right, I remember you making a similar point right after the Games. There's perhaps uh, no reason why Korea can't do uh, better in these sports, at Mm -hmm. least when competing in Asia. Uh, It does perhaps feel like an opportunity that's being uh, missed somehow as well. Well, it's been quite the year in sports, plenty of celebrations as well as heartaches. Next year promises to be an exciting year as well with the Paris Olympics, the Asian Cup in football. And we'll be eager to see how Lee Jong-woo does in the majors as well. We'll be leaning on both of you, Steve and jio I'm sure, to help us, uh, guide us through all that. In the meantime, though, we'll wrap it up there for Korean sports in 2023 hot, Steve, we appreciate all the updates that you brought for us over the last year. Have a great Christmas and New Year, and we'll see you both in 2024. Take care. Okay, thanks yeah. for having me. Thanks. And that's our show for today. Join us again tomorrow to continue to get your daily dose of Korean news analysis. Till then, I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye.
1: Radio offers all you need to know on Korea through its various programs. Are you into the latest K-pop tracks? Then K-pop Connection is your fix. Brian Ju brings you the best of K-pop and K-culture. On Korea 24, host Kwon Jang-ho helps listeners digest all the biggest stories coming out of South Korea. Keep up with what's happening on the peninsula by listening to Korea 24. Learn about Korean folktales on Mondays with Global Audiobook, Once Upon a Time in Korea. If you're a bookworm, don't miss Books on Demand, a program that introduces Korean literature to the global audience every Tuesday. Our Wednesday program, Korea Today and Tomorrow, provides news on the latest diplomatic developments in and around the Korean peninsula. Want to go deeper than K-pop? Sounds of Korea takes a closer look at various traditional music every Thursday. KBS World Radio is your go-to channel for all things Korea. Tune in!
4: Radio.